help us to just be able to learn what you have for us tonight. Uh, we love you, Lord, and we thank you so much for giving us a Bible that we can hold in our hands, that we can read, that we can study, that we can memorize. And Lord, I, I pray that you would please bless this time in your precious name. I pray. Amen. Okay, well, we find ourselves there in Genesis chapter number 29. And if you remember uh, from the previous chapters, um, Jacob has deceived his father and stolen his uh, elder brother's birthright. And he's running from Esau. And he ran uh, to his uh, uncle's house there where his mother had sent him. And he's there running from Esau, waiting for Esau to kind of get over what happened. But he's also there to look for a spouse. If you remember, Isaac had sent him out uh, to, to not marry one of the daughters of the land of Canaan and so forth. And uh, just look down at verse number 21 and we'll look at kind of the story just by way of introduction. The Bible says that Jacob went on his journey and came into the land of the people of the east. And he looked and behold a well in the field. And lo, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it, and out of the well they watered the flock, and a great stone was upon the well's mouth. Now you've got to understand what's going on. They had this well, and they, they, there, there was a great stone. Now, you've got to understand, the Bible doesn't, you know, uh, exaggerate. You know, like we saw this morning, uh, when, when Mary poured that ointment on Jesus, and the Bible says it was very costly. That's not an exaggeration. It was very costly. And in the same way here, when the Bible says that there was a great stone, it was a great stone that was upon this well's mouth. And what they would do, if you look at verse uh, 3, and thither uh, were all the flags flocks gathered, and they rolled the stone from the well's mouth, and watered the sheep, and put the stone again upon the well's mouth in his place. So what these people would do is, they would wait, all the flocks of that town or that city would come together to this well, and they would just wait there, till everybody showed up. And then when everybody showed up, it would take the whole entire group, all of them together would remove this stone, and then they'd water the sheep, and then they would all together put it back, because it was so big and so heavy. Look at verse 4. And Jacob said unto them, My brethren, when speed? And they said, Of Haran are we. So Jacob sees this, and he sees these people just waiting by the well, and he's asking them, You know, where are you from? They said, We're from Haran. And he said unto them, Know ye Laban, the son of Nahor? So he's asking, you know, uh, about his uncle. And they said, We know him. And he said unto them, Is he well? And they said, He is well. And behold, Rachel, his daughter, cometh with the sheep. So if you remember, they're all, they're waiting, you know, and they're just kind of, these are the people that got there a little earlier, and they're waiting for everybody to show up. And they said, they said Yeah, he's well. And look, Rachel is coming in. Uh, Jacob looks over and he sees Rachel coming with the sheep because the Bible says, uh, if you look at verse uh, 5, and he said unto, uh, or, or I'm sorry, verse 6, and he said unto them, he, is he well? And they said, he is well. And behold, Rachel, his daughter, cometh with the sheep. And he said, lo, it is yet high day, neither is it time that the cattle should be gathered together. Water ye the sheep and go and feed them. And they said, we cannot. So notice he's saying, look, why are you guys all together? You know, it's not, it's not, it's high day. He's saying, it's, it's not time for you to, you know, what, what are you doing? Why, why are you guys all just standing around? You know, it's not quitting time, you should be working. And, the, and he said, water the sheep and go and feed them. And they said, we cannot, until all the flocks be gathered together, until they roll the stone from the wall's mouth, then we water the sheep. So he's saying, look, we're just waiting for everybody to show up, the stone's so heavy, we can't do it. We're waiting for everybody to show up, and then we'll all do it together. Look verse 9. And while he yet spake with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she kept them. And it came to pass, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near, and rolled the stone from the well's mouth, and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Now I want to make a point here, and it's not part of the sermon, but you know, so often people will mock at Jacob, and I've heard this my entire life growing up, you know, uh, in Sunday school or whatever, uh, you, I, you, you were taught that Jacob was like this wimp, you know. I don't know if you ever heard this, but they'll compare like Jacob to Esau, and they'll say, Jacob was a smooth man, and Esau was this hairy man. Jacob like took care of the flock, and Esau was this hunter, and Jacob was just like this mama's boy, you know, that's what they'll talk about, Jacob. And, and you know, I would, I would submit to you that that's not true. I don't think God uh, would have chosen a man who was some, uh, you know, effeminate mama's boy to make him, you know, the, the, the you know, name him the Israel, and have from him come the twelve tribes. Jacob was a great man. And here we see that, you know, all these people are gathered together to move the stone. And Jacob, you know, trying to impress this girl that he sees. He sees Rachel and he likes her. And in the Bible says he just rolls the stone. I mean, something that takes all these people to do. Jacob, so, you know, don't, don't be fooled. Jacob, I don't believe was this, you know, the Bible. And as you study, as we look at Jacob's life, you're 
ministry. He was a very hard worker. He was a very, you know, good provider for his family. He was a strong man. He was a good man. And obviously he had his problems and his issues, but you know, he was able to just roll his stone. He said, and it came to pass, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. So he's trying to impress this girl. And Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's brother and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. And it came to pass when Laban heard the tidings of Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And he told Laban all these things. Now we see here, you know, just by way of introduction, kind of setting up the story, Jacob is now staying with Laban. He ran away from from Isaac and his mother and Esau, and he's now staying with Laban, his uncle. Look down at verse 14, and see what happens to him here. The Bible says, And Laban said to him, Surely thou art my bone and my flesh. And he abode with him the space of a month. So, after staying there for a month, and he's kind of been working there with them, and helping out, you know. In verse 15, the Bible says, And Laban said unto Jacob, Because thou art my brother, shouldest thou therefore serve me for naught? Tell me what shall be thy what shall thy wages be? So Jacob shows up. He's been there for a while, and you know I would imagine after being there, he's probably asking, "Oh, can I help with something? What can I do?" Maybe you know he starts working, and uh, Laban notices, "Hey, this guy's a good worker," and he, and he says to him, "You know, just because you're related to me, you ought not you know be working for free." He says, "What what do you what 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 would your wages be? Like, what can I pay you?" And you know, just again, Laban notices there that Jacob is a hard worker, and and notice how Laban sounds very fair, doesn't he? He's saying, oh, he's saying, look, you know, tell me what thy wages, you know, tell me what shall thy wages be. Look at verse 16. And Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. And Jacob loved Rachel, and said, I will serve thee seven years for Rachel, thy younger daughter. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to thee than that I should give her to another man abide with me. And Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had to her. So Jacob, I mean, seven years to marry this girl. And the Bible says it seemed like just a few days. Because he was just so in love with her. And Jacob, um, look at verse 21. And Jacob said unto Laban, Give me my wife. For my days are fulfilled, that I may go in unto her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place, and made a feast. And it came to pass in the evening, that he took Leah his daughter, and brought her to him, and he went in unto her. Now this has nothing to, uh, nothing to do with the sermon, but just something to keep in mind, because uh, I've preached on this before. In, in the Old Testament times, you know, their weddings were different than our weddings. You know, they, they would last a lot longer and whatever. And it wasn't a legitimate wedding until it was, um, ah, the, the word slips my mind. Consummated. You know, and, and, and they had this wedding, and the, and the way, you know, and obviously, I, you know, I don't know exactly how it all went down, but somehow, Laban was able to switch out, uh, you know, his daughter, his younger daughter, daughter for his older daughter. And uh, if you look at verse 23, And it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to him, and he went in unto her. And Laban gave unto his daughter Leah, Ziplah, his maid, and his handmaid. And it came to pass in, in the morning, behold, it was Leah. So in the morning he's like, whoa, you know, this is not who I married. And he said to Laban, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Did I not serve with thee for Rachel? Wherefore then hast thou beguiled me? So he's saying, notice he's complaining. That word beguiled is talking about being deceived or taking advantage of or being lied to. And he says, you know, why did you beguile me? And Laban said, It must not be so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week, because, you know, weddings and, and the marriage ceremony, they lasted, you know, Days. It's not like today, how we do it today. For four week, and we will give thee this also for the service which thou shalt serve with me yet seven other day, seven other years. And Jacob did so, and fulfilled her week, and he gave him Rachel his daughter to wife also. And Laban gave to Rachel's daughter Bilhah his handmaid to be her maid, and he went in also unto Rachel, and he loved also Rachel more than Leah, and served with him uh, yet seven of the years. Again, something that has nothing to do with the sermon, but just something that I, I noticed there, is I was always taught that uh, uh, Jacob worked seven years, married Leah, figured out it wasn't Leah, and then he worked another seven years and married Rachel. But I believe the, the scripture is very clear there, that he worked seven years, married Leah, waited a week, you know, for the ceremony and the, the tradition that had to be done, and then Rachel was given to him immediately. 
But he had to finish the seven other years because he was lied to, you know, he lied to. But anyway, the, the point of the sermon is this. We find in the story, you know, Jacob has been beguiled. Jacob has been lied to. But it's interesting because just a couple chapters ago, Jacob is the one beguiling. Jacob is the one lying. Jacob is the one that's deceiving and, be, and taking advantage of people. And you know, the Bible teaches this principle. Go to Galatians in the New Testament, chapter number 6. Galatians chapter number 6 in the New Testament. And the sermon tonight, I promise you, is not going to be very long. Uh, um, we're just going to do a little bit of a Bible study and uh, look at a few verses and make some applications. But look at Galatians chapter number 6. And look at verse number 7. Galatians chapter number 6 in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then Galatians. Galatians chapter number 6 and verse 7, the Bible says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, and he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. When you find this principle in the Bible of sowing what you reap. You know, today people who reject the Bible and reject God, they, 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 they call it karma. You know, where what goes around comes around. And you know, I just believe as Christians, we ought not use that terminology. You ought not, you know, say, oh, that person has good karma, that person has bad karma, that person... You know, God calls it uh, sowing and reaping. And God gives this promise that applies to every single individual on earth. And He says, you will reap what you sow. And He gives this analogy of farming or planting. And He says, if you take a seed of something and you plant it on the ground, you know, you take, you take apple seeds or you take corn and you plant it, what's going to come from what you sow, because that's what sowing is, it's planting something, then what's going to come from that, what you're going to reap from that, is what you sow. And he says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For what to him in sword, that shall he also reap. And Jacob literally wasted 14 years of his life. Jacob literally had to work 14 years of his life because he was lied to. But why did God allow that to happen? Why did God allow him to be lied to and, and so much time wasted and so much work wasted? Why? Because he lied. Because he deceived and then God said, Hey, you sowed deception. You sowed lies. You sowed, you know, ripping somebody else off. Now you're going to be ripped off. Now you're going to sow what you reap. Rip. Look at verse 7 in Galatians 6. It says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. You know, and we as Christians ought to take a real good look at this promise and understand that in this world, you will not get away with anything. In this world, you will reap what you sow. And we ought to be careful in the way we live our lives and the things we do. Because God says that He's not deceived and God says He's not mocked. You know, I, I, sh- I shake and I tremble when I think of certain Christians, you know, who I know and I love or I, uh, I've been acquainted with. And I watch their lives. And so often we as you know, Christians will, will go on a path that is wrong, that is sinful, and they know it's wrong, and they know that the Bible tell, is telling them that they, you know, and it just seems like they just don't care. They just lie to themselves and think, you know, uh, they'll, they'll make uh, comments like, well, I'm just glad that God is not, you know, judgmental. I mean, good night. Read, read the Bible. God is very judgmental. <laughs> and, and, you know, we, we have, you know, sometimes we watch people just, it seems like they can do whatever they want. And nothing ever happens to them. They never, you know, but hey, be not deceived. God is not mocked. You're not going to laugh at God and you're not going to mock at God. And what you sow, you will reap. Uh, go, uh, keep, keep, keep your spot there in Galatians because we're going to be coming back to it. Maybe put your bulletin there or something. But go with me to the Old Testament book of Hosea. Hosea uh, is one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Hosea, and we'll go to chapter number 10. Hosea chapter number 10. Hosea chapter number 10 and look at verse number 13. Hosea chapter number 10 and verse 13. The Bible says, Ye have plowed wickedness, ye have reaped iniquity. Ye have eaten the fruit of lies, because thou didst trust in thy way, in the multitude of thy mighty men. But notice, God says, Hosea's prophesying his people. He says, you plowed wickedness. That's a, plowing is the same idea. Um, it's preparation for sowing. When you're plowing the ground, you know, and you're getting ready to sow. He said, you plowed wickedness, and you've reaped iniquity. In this world, you will reap what you sow. Go up in Proverbs chapter number 21, look at verse number 13. 
Proverbs chapter number 21, look at verse number 13. And this is a very common theme throughout the Bible. And you find it all throughout the Bible. Uh, look at Proverbs chapter number 21 and verse number 13. Proverbs 21, 13, the Bible says, Whoso stoppeth his ear at the cry of the poor, he also shall cry himself, but shall not be heard. The Bible says, Whoso stoppeth his ears at the cry of the poor, he also shall cry himself, but shall not be heard. Isn't that amazing? Bible says if someone refuses to hear the cry of the poor, they're going to cry, but, but God is not going to hear. They shall not be heard. Go with me to 2 Samuel chapter number 12. 2 Samuel chapter number 12 and look at verse number 7. 2 Samuel chapter number 12 and look at verse number 7. The Bible says in 2 Samuel chapter number 12 and verse 7, if you're familiar with the story, David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And God sent Nathan the prophet to uh, call him out on it. And to let him know that what he did was not right. And in 2 Samuel chapter number 12 and verse 7, the Bible says, And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Because if you remember, Nathan gave him the story about a man who had, you know, one little lamb, and this other man had a lot of sheep, and he took the one person's lamb, and, and, and he was asking David what should be done, and David pretty much, you know, condemned him. And then Nathan said to him, Thou art the man. He was using an illustration to show him what he did. And he said, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house, and thy master's wives unto thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. God says to David, I blessed you, I gave you everything, I gave you the house of your enemy. He said, anything you wanted, you could have had. He said, and if that wasn't enough, I would have gave you more. I would have blessed you more. I would have, such and such thing. He said, I, I would have let you do whatever you wanted, David. I, I loved you, David. I would have blessed you. But look at verse 9. He says, wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Notice what he says. Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. And has taken his wife to be thy wife. And has slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore, because if you remember, he had uh, David commit adultery with Bathsheba, who was married to Uriah the Hittite, who was one of David's mighty men. One of his close allies. And then David, you know, if you remember the story, he tried to get Uriah to come back from war and to go in unto his wife so that then, because Bathsheba ended up being with child because of their adultery, and he was trying to make it seem like, oh no, that's, that's Uriah's son, but Uriah had more character than David, and when he came back to war, he refused to go back to the house, and he said, he, and he said why would I go back and, 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 you know, to my house and, and sleep with my wife when the men of Israel and the, uh, are fighting a war in tents? And he said, I refuse to go back. So then David tried to get him drunk. And even after he got him drunk, he still wouldn't go. So David wrote a letter saying, put uh, Uriah the Hittite in the hottest part of the battle. And then when, when he's in that hottest part of the battle, the most dangerous part of the battle, I want you to step back and then just let the Amorites kill him. And God saw this and he was angry and he said, Thou hast despised the command of the Lord to do evil in thy sight. Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, look at what God says. He says, Because of this, David, the sword shall never depart from thine house. Notice how God's punishment is the exact same thing. He said, You killed Uriah with the sword, the sword shall never depart from thine house. And because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes, and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of his son, for thou didst this in thou didst it in secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And if you remember, David's son, Absalom, ended up raising up a revolt against David, ended up, ended up fighting against David, ended up killing one of his own brothers, uh, and, and then when, when David ran away from Absalom, what, what, you know, he ran out into the field and whatever, Absalom went in and became king of Israel, and what Absalom did is he took David's concubines, 
and they set up a tent up on the roof of the palace, and the Bible says that uh, Absalom went in unto his own father's wives and had sexual relationship with his wife in the sight of all Israel. And, all, you know, they couldn't see exactly what was going on, but they knew what was going on. And that was part of God's punishment because uh, to David, because David took another man's wife, then God allowed his enemy to take his wife's in the sight of everybody. And you see that David was just reaping what he sowed. He killed with the sword. The sword never departed his house. He took another man's wife, and then another man took his wife. You know, and, and we got to understand that the God of the Bible is not exactly this, you know, happy-go-lucky, everything's going to be great, God all the time. There are times when God will recompense His reward upon the wicked. And we must understand that this rule is a rule that we live with and we reap what we sow. And so often we just are blatant and sin against God. You know, so often people just decide, they know what the Bible says. They know what certain things are sin. They know that certain things are wrong. And they just decide to do it anyway. They decide to just spit in God's face and say, I don't really care. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't seem to affect me. My life seems to be fine. My life seems to be good. Hey, but be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. David was doing all these secret things, was lying and, and doing all this stuff, trying to save face, trying to make sure that no one found out about his sin, trying to make sure that nobody, and guess what? Everybody found out about his sin. Everybody saw God's punishment on his life. God said, for thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. You will reap what you sow, Jacob. You want to deceive and you want to lie, you will be deceived and you will be lied too. But you know, go, go back to Galatians chapter number 6. I, I told you maybe put like a bulletin there or something. Reaping what you sow is probably one of the scariest promises God has for us in the Bible. But you know, it's not necessarily only negative. It can be a positive thing. If you look at Galatians chapter number 6 and verse 7, the Bible says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Look at verse 9. And let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. And you know, reaping what you sow, yes, is a negative thing when we sin, and we know that we're going to end up having to reap that which we sowed, but it also has a positive light. There's a good thing about it, because often as we sow good things, as we sow, you know, doing well to others, and as we sow that good thing, we might reap good things. You know, uh, Pastor Mark Lewis, a very good friend of mine, uh, I think he, he calls this, you know, filling up your mercy tank. And you know, we ought to have this attitude where we're just constantly, you know, trying to be nice to people and kind to people and uh, loving to people and helpful to people. And you know, we ought to be, uh, when, when people do us wrong, we ought to be willing to forgive them because you know what, one day you might be wishing someone would forgive you. You know, we ought to show mercy to people because one day we are going to wish others would show mercy to us. And we ought to be kind to people because one day we are going to wish that others would be kind to us. And there's a positive thing in this reaping which you sow. You know, you, you must understand that as you do right, and sometimes we do right, and we do right, and we do right, and we try to work for God and love God and love people and sacrifice, and, and it seems like people are just taking advantage of us. It seems like people are just, you know, you know, we, uh, so, you know especially in the ministry so often, it seems like the people you pour your life into the most are the ones who are the most, you know, just unappreciative. But you know, sometimes, I, sometimes we do things and it's completely an inconvenience to me and my wife and our lives. And if it just doesn't work out well, I, I just think to myself, you know what, let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we may not. And I just say, you know what, God? I'm just going to try to serve people. I'm just going to try to love people. I'm just going to try to help people. And then maybe one day someone is going to love me and help me when I need it. You know, it's a positive thing. Go to Ephesians chapter number 6. Look at verse number 8. You're there in Galatians. Go to Ephesians chapter number 6. Look at verse 8. Ephesians 6, 8 says, Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, look what it says. Knowing that 
whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. God says, any good thing you do, you will receive of the Lord. And we ought to not be weary in well-doing. Because we will reap. And this, this is a great promise in the Bible. Yes, to keep us away from sin, understanding that we will reap what we sow. But in order to encourage us to do good and to love others and to work hard, because as we work and as we reap those good things, one day we will sow those good things. Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. Luke chapter number 6 and verse 38. Look at that verse. Luke chapter number 6. In the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter number 6. And look at verse number 38. Luke 6, 38 says, Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together, and running over shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. And look, and I'm not one of these prosperity preachers where I'm, you know, telling you to just do good and God's going to make you rich. But God says, it's very clear from the Scripture, if you give, it shall be given unto you. And you say, well, how, how is God going to measure His goodness on me? How is God going to measure His blessing on me? He's going to use the same measuring stick you use. He says, given it shall be given unto you. And look at the last part of that verse. He says, um, for with the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. So when someone, you know, someone needs your help with something, and you say, ah, that's a little too much. I'm not willing to, I'm willing to do this much, but, but, but I'm not willing to do this much. God says, well, when you need something from me, I'll, 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 I'll be willing to do that much as well. He says, the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured unto you. But God says, but here's the difference. He says, you know, he's using this analogy of like a measuring cup. My wife does a lot of baking, she uses measuring cups. He, you know, you got these measuring cups and this is how much good you can do to different people. If you choose, you know, this is how much I can do. He says, I'm going to use the same measuring cup for you. But he says, the difference is that it will be good measure. He says, I, I'm going to press it down and I'm going to shake it together and it's going to be running over. You know, when you're trying to get more stuff into that little, you know, maybe more flour, whatever. Maybe you would shake it a little bit and press it down try to pour more. He says, I'm going to make sure it's overflowing. I'll use the same measuring cup, but I'm going to try to give you as much as I can. But he says, give and it shall be given unto you. Why? Because you reap what you sow. Uh, we were in Hosea chapter number 10. Uh, I don't know if you kept your spot there, but in verse 12 it says, sow to yourself in righteousness, reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till He come and rain righteousness upon you. God says, if you sow in righteousness, you will reap in mercy. Reaping what you sow can be a positive thing. But we've got to understand a few things about this law about reaping and sowing. Go, go to Acts chapter number 8. And like I said, the, tonight's maybe a little bit more like a Bible study, but look, look at Acts chapter number 8 and look at verse number 1. We saw that you reap what you sow. Jacob reaped what he sowed. And we saw that it can be both a positive and a negative thing. You will reap negative things if you sow negative things. And you will reap positive things if you sow uh, positive things. But notice that there's no time frame for this. Look at Acts chapter number 8 and look at verse 1. The Bible says, And Saul was consenting unto his death. And we're reading about Saul who later on got saved and became the Apostle Paul. And he's consenting unto the t- death of Stephen. We, we talked about Stephen on Wednesday night, one of the first deacons. And Bible says, And Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. And for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. So you see there that Saul, before his conversion, was persecuting the church. He was consenting unto the death of Stephen. He made havoc of the church. He was throwing people in prison. Look at Acts chapter number 9 and verse 10. Acts chapter number 9, you're there in Acts 8, just flip over to chapter 9 and verse 10. Later on, Paul has this Damascus Road, you know, experience there. 
And he's there, sitting there blind. And the Bible says in Acts 9.10, And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him sat the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. And as seen in a vision, a man named Ananias coming in, and putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man, how much evil he hath done to the saints at Jerusalem. So, you know, and please understand this, and I don't really have this in my notes, but, you know, people have this idea that Paul got saved on Damascus Road. And that's not true. You know... Paul was not this Pentecostal, you know, where he, you know, he saw a light, he heard a voice, and now he's saved. That's not salvation. Yes, Jesus Christ appeared to him. Yes, the light shone. Yes, he was thrown off the horse, and and he and 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 you know he became blind. But the Bible says that Paul got saved, just like every other individual in the entire Bible gets saved when someone comes and preaches the gospel to them. Ananias, God sent Ananias later on. The Damascus Road experience was just. God getting Paul's attention. But later, God sent a soul winner, Ananias, who got him saved. And I don't have it in my notes here, but later on in, in the book of Acts, when Paul is giving uh, his testimony of, of his salvation, uh, let me see if I can find it real quick. Yeah, go to, go to Acts chapter number 22, look at verse number 15. Well, actually, look at verse 12, Acts 22, 12. Look at Paul giving his conversion testimony. And in Acts chapter number uh, 22 and verse 12, he says, And one Ananias, this is Paul later on in the book of Acts, giving his testimony. He says, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there, came unto me and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. And the same hour I looked upon him. And he said, The God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will, and see that, that just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And now, why tarriest thou? Arise, and be baptized, and wash away thy sins. Look what he says. He says, Calling on the name of the Lord. Now, you know, he doesn't say, Wash away your sins because you got baptized. He says, Hey, be baptized comma, and wash away your sins, comma, how are you going to wash away your sins? Calling on the name of the Lord. So how did Paul get saved? The same way everyone else gets saved, by calling upon the name of the Lord, by opening their mouth and accepting Jesus Christ. That's why Paul later on wrote that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's why Paul later on wrote, wrote that with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, and with the, you know, he says, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth I don't know why I'm messing it all up. I got that verse memorized. I mean, use it out so winning every week, but let me just go to it. Romans chapter number 10 and verse 9. Sometimes you get behind the pulpit and you just forget everything. Romans 10 9 says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, this is what Paul said, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You know, people have this idea that Paul got saved because he had some experience. And then Christians try to say, oh, you know, you ask him, oh, when did you get saved? And they'll say, oh, I was on this operating table and I almost died and I saw this sign. I know that's what I got saved. No one gets saved like that. You get saved by accepting Jesus Christ, calling upon the name of the Lord, and that's how Paul got saved. He did not get saved on Damascus Road. He got saved later on when a soul winner came and preached to him the gospel. And that's what we're talking about in Acts chapter number 9. But look at verse number 11. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Acts chapter number 9, look at verse number 13. God tells Ananias, go preach to this guy Saul. And Ananias answered, you know, Ananias having got dialogue with the Lord. He says, and, and, and then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he had done to the saints of Jerusalem. He's saying like, God, you know who this guy is, Saul? He's persecuting the church. He was, they laid their... Their coats at his feet when Stephen was stoned. He's been throwing people in prison. He's done. He, he's not a good guy. And look at verse fourteen. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So God said, No, 
I've chosen him, he's going to get saved, and he's going to be a missionary to the Gentiles and to kings and to Israel. But look at verse number 16. Look at what God adds, adds to this calling. He says, For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter number 11. 2 Corinthians chapter number 11. I would challenge you to find an individual in the Bible who suffered more than Paul. Paul's ministry was one of strife and one of uh, persecution. And, and he spells it out so clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter number 11 when he's talking to the Corinthians. And he's not complaining, but he's letting them know what he's gone through. And in 2 Corinthians chapter number 11 and verse 3, the Bible says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. This is Paul speaking. He said, I am more. He says, in labors more abundant. In stripes above measure. Talking about being hit with a whip. He said, in prisons more frequent. He says, I, I, I'm in prison all the time. In deaths oft, of the Jews, five times received I, forty stripes, save one. He's saying, the Jews five different times punished me by whipping me with a whip on my back. Forty times, save one. So 30, they would do it thirty-nine times. Because the Old Testament, Old Testament law said you weren't allowed to whip a man more than forty times. So they would just whip some people thirty-nine. They did this to Jesus Christ. And they did it to Paul five different times. He said, of the Jews five times, received thy forty stripes, save one. He said, thrice was I beaten with rods. Could you imagine that? Just having a group of people with like rods and just beating you with it. He said, that happened to me three times. He said, once was I stoned. I mean, to me, stoning is probably one of the worst ways to die. I mean, having people take huge rocks and throw them at you as hard as they can until you die. You know, not one at a time, but just multiple people throwing the stone. He said that happened to him. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day have I been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hungers and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And you know, Paul, just his ministry was just persecution after persecution, trial after trial. Storm after storm. You say, why did that happen to Paul? Well, here's why, Paul. Because Saul had to reap what he sowed. Paul imprisoned Saul imprisoned people. Saul had people stoned. Saul made havoc of the church. And when he got saved and he got converted, God said, Hey, I'm going to use you to be a great ministry, but you still have to reap what you sow. You say, that happened before he got saved. I know, there's no time frame. There's no uh, statute of limitations with reaping what you sow. You know, people say, well, I, I did all these things when I, before I was saved. You know, well, it's under the blood. Look, everybody's sins are under the blood. If you're saved, they're all under the blood. But you will still reap what you sow. Paul still had to reap what he sowed. You know, and that that uh, that type of mentality, you know, how's that fair to, to some, you know, uh, how's that going to be fair to my children? How would that be fair to me? Now, I'll say when I was four years old. I hadn't really done anything that wicked, you know, from birth till four years old. You know, so now I gotta reap every every sin I sowed, I gotta reap. But people that got saved when they were like twenty, you know, they just get a clean slate for everything they ever did, every wicked you know, it doesn't work that way. Saul did much wickedness, and Saul, even though he became Paul, still had to reap what he sowed. It it applies to Christians and non Christians. It's just, it's just a law of nature that God has given us. You will reap what you sow. And if you spend your time consenting unto the death of saints, making havoc of the church, persecuting Christians, and, and then one day you become a Christian, guess what? Paul, you're going to spend your life being persecuted, being beat, being, and because you have to reap what you sow. So, go to Hosea chapter number 8. We, we've been going back and forth. Go to Hosea chapter number 8. In the Old Testament, look at verse number 7. There's another principle you must understand about reaping what you sow. We're, all, we're almost done, I promise. Hosea chapter number 8, look at verse number 7. We're talking about reaping what you sow. We saw there, Jacob was lied to and was ripped off because he lied and he ripped off people. And in Hosea chapter number 8, in verse number 7, the Bible says this. Hosea 8, 7. For they have sown the wind... And they have, and they shall reap the whirlwind. 
they have no stock. The bud shall yield no meal. If so be it yield, the stranger shall swallow it up. I want to see the first part of that verse. He says, for they have sown the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. Now, which one is more? Just the wind that blows in the air or a whirlwind, like a tornado? I mean, the whirlwind is fierce. And God is saying, you know, when you reap, when you sow something, you're going to reap a lot more of it. Think about farming. I mean, would there, would there be many farmers today, you know, just working hard? If, if every time you reap once, you put one seed on the ground, and you received one, you know, just one, some, one thing back, you know. You put, you, you put an apple seed on the ground, and you get this big old tree that produces one apple. That's not how it works. You know, you, 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 you sow seed and you reap a lot more, you know. Uh, 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 you know, you, you put one apple seed in the ground and a huge apple tree, you know, grows up and you have many apples, you know. You always reap a lot more than what you sow. So when you reap sin and corruption and wickedness, your punishment, God says, you know, you want to reap the wind? He said, I'm going to have you sow the whirlwind. But in the same, in the same mindset... It works for good and bad. You're just kind. You're just kind to people, just maybe a little bit, and you might get a lot more blessings than you deserve. You always reap more than you sow. Not only that, nations reap what they sow. Nations reap what they sow. Let me show you some examples. Go to Second Chronicles chapter number thirty-six. Second Chronicles chapter number thirty-six. I believe it was uh, George Washington who said, "Nations." cannot be judged in the next world. They must be judged in this world. In 2 Chronicles chapter number 36, you see that God, uh, in verse 20, the Bible says, And then that had escaped from the sword, carried he away to Babylon. He's talking about when King Nebuchadnezzar came, and he just completely destroyed the nation of Israel, and he took captive back to Babylon. He says, Where they were servants to him, and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land, notice what it says, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill three score and ten years. You say, what is that about? Well, keep your finger there in Second Chronicles chapter number 36, and go with me to Leviticus chapter number 25. And let me show you something. Leviticus, Leviticus chapter number 25, look at verse number 3. In Leviticus chapter number 25, and look at verse number 3. In the Old Testament, God had given these people a, uh, a law, Leviticus 25.3, where He says, Six years thou shalt sow thy field, and six years thou shalt prune thy vineyards, and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land, a Sabbath for the Lord, thou shalt neither sow thy field, nor prune thy vineyard, that which groweth of its own accord, of thy harvest thou shalt not reap, neither gather the grapes of thy vine undressed, for it is a year of rest unto the Lord. So we understand, you know, that God had said that the Sabbath day would be a day of rest. They worked for six days and they rested on the Sabbath. But then God also said that for the field, that they were to work their field for six years, and the seventh year they were supposed to not farm. It was supposed to be a, a, a year of rest, a year of a Sabbath unto the land. And God promised them that on the sixth year, they would reap three times what, what they needed, so they would have enough to eat for that year, plus the seventh year that they weren't reaping anything, plus the first year of the new you know, week of years in. So, and, and that's, a, you know, that's a scientific principle. I mean, today people will tell you, you know, if you have a property and you're sowing you know, all the time, you're farming that property, you never let it rest. You take all the nutrients from that land, and it's, it's going to end up not yielding as good. So it's good to allow a land to rest, and that's what God was teaching. He says, I want you to sow the field for six years, and the seventh year, I don't want you to sow anything. I want you to give that land a rest. Go back to Second Chronicles chapter number 36. What happened was these people got greedy. And they decided, you know what, I'm not going to skip that seventh year. I'm going to go ahead and keep working at it, because I can make more money. And God got upset. And when the children of it, when Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon took over the children of Israel, one of the reasons was because God said, you know what? You have not let the land rest, so I'm just going to take you captive. And for every one of those years that you refuse to not allow the land to rest that seventh year, that's how long you're going to be in, captive, in captivity. 
Because I want the Lamb to rest. Look at verse 21 in 2 Chronicles 36. He said, To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the Lamb had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbaths. Notice what he says, To fulfill three score and ten years. So they were in captivity for 70 years because 70 Sabbath years they had skipped. And God said, You know what? I'm gonna, I'm, you're going to reap what you sow right now. Now look, that's a long time. And it probably seemed like, it doesn't matter. God doesn't care. It doesn't, God's law doesn't matter. But eventually God came in and said, you know what, the land's going to rest. Because I said it will. And God forces nations to reap what they sow. You say, why, why are you teaching that? Well, go to 2 Kings chapter number 24. 2 Kings chapter number 24, look at verse number 4. 2 Kings chapter number 24, and look at verse number 4. The Bible says, in 2 Kings chapter number 24, in verse 4, it says, And also, for the innocent blood that he shed, 2 Kings chapter number 24, in verse 4, And also, for the innocent blood that he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and notice what it says, which the Lord would not pardon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all that he did, and they are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. You notice that God will not refuse the shedding of innocent blood. That's why God created the death penalty. And, you know, obviously you can kill somebody and still be saved. He's not talking about salvation. But he's talking about when dealing with a nation, he would not pardon the shedding of innocent blood. And nations do reap what they sow. And I'm here to tell you something, that as America allows three to 4,000 babies to be murdered under the guise of abortions every day, I'm telling you that there will come a day when the blood will... Will be, you know, will be throughout this entire land, and we will be punished. America will reap what it's sowing by allowing innocent blood to be killed. Because at this point, this king wasn't even doing it, but he was allowing people to sacrifice their children to these gods. And God said, "Because you allow innocent blood to be shed, He said, I'm going to destroy your nation, and I'm going to kill your people, and I'm going to punish your your nation because nations will reap what they sow, and America will one day reap what it sows." Say, so what if we get right with God? It doesn't matter. God will not pardon. Maybe we can prolong the time. Maybe, we, maybe God will put off His punishment from, from our nation, you know, if we turn back to Him. But eventually, uh, we will reap what we sow. And we allow children to die, and we allow innocent blood to die. And God says that nations will reap what they sow. But let me just show you one more thing. Go with me to Psalms 126. Psalm 126. One more principle about this uh, law of reaping what you sow. There's a lot to know about this. You know, you gotta, you can't just say, "Oh, you reap what you sow." There's, there's, there's a lot of rules that go with it, and one of them is in the in the subject of sowing. Look at Psalms 126:5. Psalm 126:5 says, "They that sow in tears, notice what it says, shall reap." In joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed. What's the incorruptible seed? The Word of God. He says, if you go out and you're weeping and you're bearing precious seed, look what he says, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. You know what God says? God says if you go out bearing this precious seed, if you go out uh, preaching the gospel and trying to get people saved, God says you will. He says you will doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing His sheep with Him. God says if you go sowing, you will get people saved. You know, your desire, my desire for a long time when I was, you know, growing up as a Christian, I I just, I, I wanted with all my heart, I wanted to just have one convert. I wanted to just have one person get saved that I led them. You know, that God used me as a vessel to lead them to the Lord. And then after I went soul winning and and saw multitudes saved, you know, I I just wanted so badly to just have somebody get saved that I led them to the Lord and then come to church because I invited them. And then people started coming to church. And then I wanted so badly to have somebody get baptized because I got them saved and I brought them to church. And, and, And they got baptized because I talked to them about it. And then people got baptized. And then, and then, and then I wanted people to grow. And then I wanted people to 
see, uh, to get other people saved. And you know, you know, it took a long time to get to that place. It took a long time to see those results. It took hours upon hours upon hours of soul winning and months and months and years and years to get to the place. But you know, today, I, I'm so thankful that I can think of multitudes of people, and, and not as many as maybe I could have, but I can think of people that today are saved, baptized, going to church, and I've even led other people to Christ. Because God said it would happen. He said, if you sow in tears, you shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing and bringing his seed with him. But here's the problem. You've got to go. I got an email today from somebody saying, you know, you tell us to go soul winning, but you don't, uh, you know, you don't teach us the Bible. <laughs> I tell you to go soul winning, I teach you the Bible. Look, there's only one way to learn soul winning. Doing it. That's why he said, Go. He didn't say, go to class and learn it. He's like, go ye therefore into all the world. You know how I learned to go soul winning? By going. By being a silent partner. By watching other people get people saved. But you got to go and you got to put in the time. If you're going to see people saved in your life, it's going to take time. I'm telling you right now. One, you know, this idea, I don't know where Independent Fundamental Baptist got this idea where soul winning is 59 minutes and 59 seconds per week. You know, you complete your hour and then, you know, you can check it off your list and you did your soul winning. I don't know where you find that in the Bible. I, I've never found the time frame. But I'll tell you right now, if I go soul winning for one hour, I usually see no one saying. It usually takes two or three hours of being out soul winning before people are even talking to me. You know, and, and it's going to take time and it's going to take dedication and it's going to take a commitment, you know, not to do it once a month or once a year, but to do it on a regular basis. And God promises if you go... You will doubtless come again. And anybody can do it. I mean, if I can do it, anyone can do it. If I can think of people that I've led to the Lord, that have been baptized in our church, that have led other people to Christ, hey, you can do it too. But you've got to go. But God says you can reap. And you can sow. And soul winning. He says, I promise you. Because the Bible says in Isaiah 55, 11, last verse we'll look at. You don't have to turn there, I'll just read it for you. God said, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. God said that His word shall not return unto me void. And there's a great promise in this of reaping and sowing. We saw with Jacob there. Unfortunately, he reaped what he sowed in a negative way. And if we are in sin and if we are doing wrong, we got to understand we're going to reap what we sow as well. And our, you know, those who we love, when we watch them in sin, it breaks my heart because I know that they, they think they're getting away with it. But be not deceived. God is not mocked. But in the, same, in the same promise there, there's a positive that we can reap good things and sow good things. And if we reap just a little bit, we'll sow so much more. And that's a great uh, promise there to know that, that God has made us that. But there is no karma. But there is reaping what you sow. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Dear Father, thank you Lord so much for your word. Thank you for your Bible.